0: Hello, and welcome to the Antioch Fort Worth weekly podcast. At Antioch, our desire is to cultivate a passion for Jesus and his purposes on the earth. To connect with us in community, partner with us through giving, or visit on a Sunday morning, please visit AntiochFortWorth.com. So we live in a world today where even though we are more connected than we ever have been been before, Loneliness and isolation are hallmarks of our culture, and that's part of the reason that over the past two decades, we've seen the suicide rate in the United States go up by about 25%. And over the last year, we've seen that play itself out in the public sphere, as there were a number of celebrities who tragically chose to take their own life. I remember it was shocking to me when the news hit about Anthony Bourdain, because for Years when people would ask me, Jason, what's your dream job? I just pointed that guy. He got to travel around the world, experience different cultures, eat amazing food, talk to interesting people, and get paid a ton of money to do it. And From the outside looking in, it seemed like the perfect life. But then over and over again, we see in the news where we have actors and athletes and musicians and fashion designers and business people who all of them got to a place where they said, the only way out I can see is to end it all. And you look at the situation and you can't help but say that there's something wrong here because the people in our world who have all the fame and success, the money and the accolades and all the trappings of life that most of us think, if I could just get that, it would give me the peace and acceptance that I'm longing for. You look at them and you see that they were not okay. And While there's been a recent uptick, this is not a new problem. In history, we see where Abraham Lincoln once thanked a friend for stopping him from killing himself. He got to a point after a relational breakup and some failures at work that he just didn't want to keep living. And it was only because he was deeply embedded in a group of people who loved him and cared about him that he was able to move forward and accomplish the things we know him for today. And we could look at countless other examples where over and over again, it reinforces the point that what we have and what we do does not make for a healthy life. If our value in life is attached to fleeting things like achievement, like career success, money, possessions, the approval of others, the appearance that we have it all together, it simply is not sufficient for a whole life. The good news is that we don't have to live that way. There's another path available for us. And it makes me think about this story I heard once. It was a story about a guy named Jed. And he was a poor mountaineer He could barely keep his family fed. And then one day, he was out shooting at some food, and up from the ground came a bubbling crude oil, that is. Black, cold, Texas tea. Now, the next thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. And his kinfolk say, Jed, move away from there. They said California is the place you ought to be. So he loaded up his truck, and he moved to Beverly Hills. That is swimming pools, movie stars, you know the place. <laughs> the younger people are so confused right now. <laughs> so you have this widower man who lives out in the sticks, and he's trying to care for his elderly mother and his two uneducated children, and it's all they can do to scrape by in existence. But little does he know that right beneath the surface, there is something with the power to change his life, where he no longer has to live a life of scarcity. He can walk in freedom, he can walk in confidence, and he can live a life with an abundance mindset. Now, that's not saying at all that Jed and his family weren't going to still have problems. They had a whole slew of zany madcap adventures ahead of them. But what it does mean is that they no longer have to worry from day to day, am I going to make it? because they have access to a resource that has the power to sustain them. Now, where my analogy falls apart, it's that those hillbillies, they're still counting on the oil. They're still counting on something that they have, something on their transient wealth. But we're going to look today in Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to see that it was the belief of the Apostle Paul, and it's our main thing today, that true life change does not come from what we have or what we do, but as a result of what we believe. If we can get our beliefs right, Paul believes it has the power to sustain us, it will allow us to walk in freedom, and it will keep us standing when life gets hard. Now, before we dig deeper into what Paul has to say, I want you to see it's not just his opinion. A few years ago, in the American Political Science Review, they looked at research across decades, and they determined the single largest factor ensuring the health of nations, was the work of missionaries. They looked, and they said in the locations where there were missionaries, they had a significantly higher rate of um, economic development. There was better health. There was lower infant mortality rates, less corruption in government, higher literacy rates, higher educational attainment, especially amongst women. And it wasn't just where there were quote-unquote missionaries, but they found these results wherever they found people who they labeled as Conversionary Protestants or people who believe that God converts you on the inside. So these weren't people who they labeled as Christians who were there to push social causes or societal improvements. These were people who were followers of Jesus, who were there because they wanted to see God change people's hearts. And while they acknowledge that often missionaries are opposed to things like unjust practices and destructive practices, that the gross majority of the people they looked at were not. Um, social activists, but even so, they say unintendedly, reform came through them. Now, let's go a little bit further with it. Back in 2008, there was a British columnist by the name of Matthew Paris, and he wrote an article entitled, As an Atheist, I Believe Africa Needs God. So Paris grew up in Malawi, and after a trip back to his childhood home, it refreshed a belief in him that he'd been trying to banish his entire life. He said, It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refused to fit my worldview, has embarrassed my growing belief there is no God. But now, as a confirmed atheist, I have been convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, these alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. I used to avoid this truth by applauding the practical work of missionary churches. I would allow that if faith was needed to, motiva- to motivate missionaries, then fine. But what was needed was the help, not the faith. But, the, but this does not fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary. It is transferred to the flock. This effect matters so immensely, I cannot help observing it. And he talks about that as he was there working amongst people, he would encounter men who were optimistic and kind, who were confident and loving, then sure enough, so much so that they started joking about it, they would find a Bible in their car, or they would find them missing on Sunday morning because they'd gone to church. And he said the people who were making the biggest difference were the ones who had had the greatest difference made inside of them. And by the end of the article, he says, if we want to see real transformation inside of Africa, a belief system must be supplanted. I'm afraid if we remove Christian evangelism from the equation, we might leave the continent at the mercy of a maligned fusion of Nike and the witch doctor, the mobile phone and the machete. And then this guy, remember, a vowed atheist, he writes, we have to put Jesus in their hearts, (laughs) right? (laughs) For the sake of what they do, we have to change what they believe. And if we take that away, what do we leave them with? We leave them with technological distraction and anger. The world we live in today, the world that cannot support enough reasons to live. The world is already preaching this message. We need to see a change of heart before we're going to see a change in lives. And it's the same message that Jesus taught. He said, if we change the root, then the fruit will be good. And I can change your heart. I can change your life. If I can change your beliefs, I can change the way you live. And there's something important about the fact that up to this point in Ephesians, Paul hasn't told us a single thing to do. He's been trying to get to the root of what you believe. He knows he could give you a ton of really great self-help advice, but he knows that none of that is going to matter if you're sitting there wondering if life is even worth living. And if that's where we're living, it's no wonder we're blown to and fro. We need to have some steel in our foundation for when the storms come. So look with me, if you will, at Ephesians chapter three, starting in verse fourteen. It said, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth So, through the first two and a half chapters of Ephesians, Paul is explaining that God is building a community, and by his grace, he's inviting anybody and everybody to be a part of it. And then we get here to verse 14, and Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, in most pictures that we see of people in the early church praying, um, you don't typically see them kneeling to pray. More commonly, we see drawings of people standing with their arms raised, which really messes with my Church of Christ sensibilities. But... (laughs) If you saw somebody kneeling, it was a sign of great humility, a great submission. Paul knows how much we need what he's about to tell us, how desperately we need to understand and believe it. And through the rest of the book, he's going to give us 41 different commands. But he knows before we can even get into that, we have to get this right. So he bows his knees before the Father from whom every family and heaven on earth is named. He's saying he's the daddy of all y'all, so you can't write this off. It doesn't matter who you are, what background you came from. He made you, and this truth is for you. That according to the riches of his glory, may he grant you to be strengthened and power through his spirit and inner being. He wants power to get inside you by his very spirit getting into the deepest part of you. For what purpose? So that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. What Paul is begging God to do is to give you the strength to let Jesus Christ be at home inside you. And that word dwell, it's a strong word. It infers a sense of being settled, of a continued presence. It's not talking about a visitor. It's not talking about a temporary residence. It's talking about someone who has moved in for good. He wants Jesus to be settled in you, to be at home there, to be comfortable there. Now, where we can get confused is because in modern-day evangelicalism, we use the vernacular of inviting Jesus into our heart. But Paul is not talking about conversion here. He's writing, a church, writing the letter to the church in Ephesus. They're people who already know and trust Jesus. What he's saying is, I hope Jesus is at home in you, not just that you know him, but that he feels welcomed in every part of your life, not just confined to where we feel comfortable letting him, But we like to keep our spirituality within some safe borders. And we let it touch the things that we're willing to pray about. So we'll we'll pray for some sick family members or some minor crises we have going on in life or some things that we want. But there's these other areas of life where he's not invited. And it's kind of like in our life group. Every week we send out an email with the responsibilities and another part of that email is the housekeeping rules. And one that's in there every week is that if a door is closed in the, fam- in the home of the host family, don't open it. Don't go in there. That's where we pushed everything else so that the rest of the house looks presentable. That's where we hid the things we don't want anybody messing with. That's where we introverts go to hide and cry when there are too many kids in our house, <laughs> right? But if we're hosting and I send the email, those rules do not apply to my wife because she lives there. She can go anywhere she pleases. She can pick up and handle whatever she wants. She knows which closet I like to hide in, and she can go and reassure me and talk me back out of there. Paul is praying that Jesus be welcomed in you the same way where nothing is off limits. He can walk into the kitchen of your heart and have a conversation about what you're eating, about what it is that you're feeding yourself. He can, is he welcome as you're standing in the bathroom and the thoughts you think as you look in the mirror? Does what he has to say to, about you factor into the decisions that you make and the thoughts that are running through your head? When you lay down in your bed with the thoughts that you think at night and the decisions that you make and the things that you believe most intimately, is he there with you in those moments? He wants to be there. We far too often try to keep our spirituality in a safe place, but Paul says he needs to be welcomed not just into the parts that are cleaned and dusted and that we feel good about, but also into the parts that are dark and that are dirty and that we don't want anybody to see, especially not Jesus. Now, some of you are hearing this and you're thinking, I don't really think that sounds good. That seems a bit intrusive to me. I mean, I'm fine with a modicum of spirituality, but these other areas of my life, I don't need Jesus in on my decisions in these areas. I have goals and comforts and commitments here that, Jesus, you just you cannot touch. You can come in here and you can sit on the couch, but you are not welcome in these other areas. And Paul prays that God can give you the strength to open the doors and let him into these areas. But if there's something inside you that is screaming that I don't want that, do you know why the reason why that is? It's because you don't know him very well. It's because you don't trust him. Because you think that if he steps into this area of my life, he's going to be a taker and not a giver. He's going to take something from me. He's going to say some, say no to something that I want. There are things that I want to think about myself, and he's going to rob that from me. There are things that I find comfort in that he's going to take away. So, no, I don't want you in that part of my life, Jesus. And if that's where you are this morning, hear me say it again as lovingly as possible. You don't know him very well. There are parts of our life where we are deeply hurting and we need the strength to realize that that's where we need him the most. He needs to be settled into those places so that you Being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and understanding, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Why do you think he wants to be in every corner of your life? Is it to judge you? Is it to condemn you? Is it to take from you? No, in John chapter 3, it says that for those who believe in him, they are not condemned. The truth of the matter is the more comfortable you are with him, meeting you in every quiet place, the more he's going to convince you how deeply loved you are. And that is a knowledge, that is a belief that we all need. How does someone successful go back to their hotel room and take their own life? It's because there were rooms in their house that were closed off, where there was no one there but themselves, and the darkness grew there until eventually it took over the front of the house. When you begin to pray like he's welcome in every part of your life, when you say, Jesus, please analyze the way that I think about my identity, the way I think about my sexuality, the way I think about my relationships, Jesus, come in. He's going to come in there not to condemn you, but to love you, to speak life into you. I have three kids, and I love them dearly. And when I step into the room, it is not for the purpose of condemning them or taking from them. Now, does that mean that I'm going to leave them unchanged? No, they are a mess. You would not believe the decisions they make or the falsehoods that come out of their mouth. But when I have to step in and correct them, it is not from a desire to condemn them. It's because I'm committed to their good. It's because I'm committed to love them in every part of their life, even when they don't have eyes to see it that way. It's because I know the end result of the decisions they're making, and I'm trying to spare them that. And, y'all, I'm a flawed dad. I've got, I don't have it all figured out at all. But I feel like that this part of me reflects the heart of God. When Christ dwells in your heart, when you realize the immensity of God's love for you, you will become grounded with a firm foundation, with roots running deep. And when that happens, you not only see the love of God in you, and for you, but you begin seeing the love of God working its way out all around you. And when that happens, it changes the way you view the world, and it changes the way you live your life. The problem is we far too often try to flip-flop that. We try to change the way we live our life so that we can get the love and acceptance that we want from ourselves, or from others, or from God. But the problem is when we do that, it's kind of like just trying to spackle in a house, So you have a crack that shows up on the roof, and you just throw some paint on it and blow some more of that popcorn stuff up there. And then another crack shows up in the wall, and you just change out the sheetrock. And then a leak springs over here, and you throw some tape around it and move a plant in front to hide the water damage. And you keep painting and taping and spackling. You're trying to fix all these problems, but the cracks are going to keep coming back because your foundation is bad. And all those attempts to fix the symptoms, they often just lead us to even darker places. How do people get into addiction? You start out where you're feeling unloved or unlovely, like no one could care about me, and I just hate myself, and I need something that can dull the pain, that can silence the noise for just a minute. So I go to this place. I go to this substance. I go... To this website. And while it may offer some momentary relief, the sinister side of it is that it also builds onto my shame, reinforcing the idea that I am bad, I am unclean, I am unlovable. And for some of us, it's not anything that we would classify as an addiction, but we still do some really sad, broken things and a desire to feel accepted. We get into codependent relationships. We exaggerate things so people will like us more. We work way harder than we should to manage and craft our online presence. And this time of year, a lot of us are making New Year's resolutions, and we think, if I can just fix this weight, if I can fix this money situation, if I can get a better job, then everything is going to be okay. My life will be better, but the truth is you can end up thinner and richer and more successful and still be without hope. For so many people, you can end up with everything you were looking for, and it's a scary place to be because you realize you still feel empty. We tape, we paint, we spackle, thinking if I can just hide these cracks, someone will want this house. You need to work on your foundation. You need to be rooted in something greater you need to be rooted and grounded in his love. You need to know that he is settled in me and I am settled in him. The more I allow his love into the broken places in my life, the more that I see that his love extends far beyond what I could ever imagine. That before the creation of the world, he made the decision, I'm going to love Trisha. I'm going to love John. From the beginning of time through the ages to come, his love for you, his love for me, has been constant and abundant, so much so that he sent his son to rescue me. And there is no sin, there is no darkness that his love cannot overcome. There's nothing that can scare him away. And it doesn't, make just, doesn't just make us acceptable, it makes us prized. So no matter how circumstances change, we know we are fully and deeply loved. And that will never change. So how do we get there? It's great to say that we need to dwell in Jesus and that we need to understand his love for us, but it's not just a switch we can flip, right? What are some practical steps we can take to foster that type of relationship? So I've got three different ones for you. And the first one is the same one I preached last summer, is that we need godly community. Paul says, he prays that the Spirit would strengthen people so you might comprehend along with all the saints. We were never meant to do this alone. You need to be surrounded by Spirit-filled friends who can speak life and truth to you when times get hard. Secondly, you need to spend time in the Word and in prayer. I saw a post on Twitter recently where a guy was saying that after years of ministering to men, he could break most of them down into two categories. We had the first group who spends... Um, regular time studying their Bible and in prayer, and they have a vibrant and active faith. And the other groups spend almost no time on those activities, and their faith is anemic and a constant struggle. I'm not positive, but I think we could remove the gender specificity there, right? And then I saw another thread on Twitter earlier this week from Beth Moore. And if you're on Twitter and you're not following Beth Moore, you're doing it wrong. So, <laughs> but she says, I believe in new beginnings not just in New Year's resolutions. I'm talking about real, live, fresh starts. An abiding, overcoming, effective, fulfilling life in Christ isn't an accident. I say this with earnestness and affection. We can't just do the same thing and expect something different. I believe to my core that for those of us in Christ, a vivid relationship with him feeds everything else, all the way from our personal relationships to our integrity and effectiveness in the workplace. Our our creativity comes alive in him. Our wisdom increases. He impacts everything. This isn't some health and wealth prosperity gospel. Listen, your obedience to Christ could lead to less money, not more. Less safety, not more. I'm talking about something far more important for you. I'm talking about what really does make life mean something, a soul that prospers. So what's the plan to intensify your intimacy with Christ in 2019? In all my years of doing life and work and ministry, I've never once seen a Holy Ghost-empowered, effective, joy-filled life that wasn't intentional in relationship with God. He or she pursues the one pursuing them. You cannot develop intimacy with God by reading scriptures on Instagram. It will never happen. You have to be in the Word for yourself. You will never develop intimacy with God by other people praying for you. This one is yours. No one can pursue Jesus for you. Don't miss him. You want a life worth living through all the hurts and ups and downs and all the rejections and all the successes and failures and betrayals and gains and losses and pains? I promise you, if I know my head from a hole in the ground, this life can only be found in Christ. I'm going to be blunt because sometimes that's the only way I hear a thing. There's only one key to keeping it up longer than a few days. Keeping it up. People you know who've done the thing don't have more natural ability Patience or discipline, they made a choice. You can do it. So I don't know I can add a whole lot more to that. (laughs) But let me to reinforce, you can't expect to truly know the character of God if you don't spend any time with him, if you don't spend any time looking to see what he has to say. If all your conversations with him are wooden and formulaic and they're one-way conversations where you never ask him to speak into your life, you will never truly come to know him or his character. And if you're going to have a New Year's resolution, and this is not already part of your rhythms of life, then I strongly, strongly encourage you to begin incorporating it into your daily rhythms and routines. It's the one of the most important, game-changing steps you can take in 2019. Okay? The third step is submission, and there are some of you who probably just recoiled a little bit because submission is a dirty word in our culture. We don't want to submit to anybody because we got freedom. It's America, right? Pew, pew, that's not in the notes (laughs) Um, yeah so the last thing we want to do is submit but there are a couple problems with what we define as freedom because we in the west have radically defined that term freedom Um, we think of it as being able to free being able to do whatever we want but that's a fairly recent change sociologist Charles Taylor said in the past century we have shifted from a culture of authority to a culture of authenticity. So we no longer live by what any authority tells us to do, be that God, the Bible, tradition, our parents, culture. Instead, we live by what we would call what our authentic self wants to do, or our desires. And before the shift took place, most people in the Western world viewed our desires through the lens of 4th century philosopher Augustine, who saw our desires often is disordered loves. So we were made in the image of God, in love, by love, and he made us to love. And where we get off is we either we love the wrong things or we love the right things but in the wrong order. So it's not wrong to love your career, but if you love it more than your kids, it's going to create havoc in your life. Right? And so with that worldview, is about learning to say yes to the right desires and no to the wrong desires. And the way you knew which was which was by mental maps that were passed down from our families, our churches, the New Testament, by your tradition. So when people started beginning to study liberal arts, the hope of it was that by studying the great books, you could become a person of self-mastery, that the combination of self-discipline and self-control would give you real freedom. You had to have self-mastery to be able to steward the freedom that you had. But then about 100 years ago, Sigmund Freud came along, and he said that our most important desire is our desire for pleasure. And he said that when we repress our desire, that that is the basis for all neurosis. So so essentially, when you or someone in authority over you says no to an authentic desire that you're feeling, that that makes you unhappy, that that's the cause of your problems. Now, think about for a minute how different those two worldviews are. What our ancestors called chastity, we now call repression or repression. What we called self-mastery before, is now a cultural sin because we see it as imperative to follow our desires, to follow our feelings. The self exists to be explored, indulged, and expressed, not disciplined or restrained. One thing you should never do is deny yourself, except ironically, that's one of the first things that Jesus called us to do. The previous mindset was about having freedom from, and now it's about having freedom to. But the the funny thing is, we all inherently know that it's not productive to try to follow our desires because they are fickle and they are conflicting. If you don't believe me, just go to the grocery store checkout aisle. On this side, we've got our fitness magazines with five steps for rock-hard abs. And on this side, we've got our cooking magazines with decadent chocolate cakes and 12 recipes for weeknight enchiladas. Now, I desire to look like Ryan Gosling, but I also desire to eat me some enchiladas. But the problem is they conflict. If I want to look like this, I cannot eat this. And if I eat this, then I cannot look like this. But if I don't follow my desire, then I'm going to be unhappy. So which one do I follow? And all of you were saying he clearly chose the enchiladas, right? <laughs> we all live with these warring desires, and our strongest desires are not always our deepest desires. In the moment of temptation, those desires, the desires of our flesh, They feel way stronger, but when we're outside of that moment, we find our deeper, truer desire to love and honor God and each other. The desires of our flesh are deceitful. The weapons of our enemy are lies, and they're not simple lies. It's not like the guy who built a rocket in his backyard trying to tell you the earth is flat. It's like a sophisticated algorithmic bot from a troll farm in Russia who has been watching your every move and has a plan to play to your cravings, to your flesh, to your sinful nature, and it knows which arguments you are weakest to, and it's going to try to exploit them over and over and over again. The flesh is anti-love. It's all about gratifying self, and it cannot be trusted. And so that's why we can't rely on willpower. We have to tap in to spirit power. We, as followers of Jesus, have access to a power that is beyond us. We have the capacity to open our mind and our body to the Spirit of God and for that Spirit to give us the power to overcome the flesh, flesh, to give us freedom from internal oppression and freedom from sin. It's about consistently, prayerfully submitting to God and saying, God, by your Spirit, let me see what you have for me. Before I spend time in your Word and go out into the world, let me see the wonderful things in your law. Help me be a person who can see you and where your kingdom is breaking through. Submit your thoughts to Him. God, why am I downcast? Lord, this is what I'm thinking about myself and my situation. How do you see those things? And the good news is that the more we make those decisions, the more it becomes like compounding interest, where those benefits build and build and build. And whatever you plant in the soil of your heart, it's going to reap in your character. So if you plant these decisions, then it's going to become easier and easier to take steps in that same direction. But conversely, if you continually plant... Uh, negativity and skepticism and stress, then those things will build as well until those become your character. So, y'all go ahead and stand. The ministry team, come forward. Paul prays that we can be filled with all the fullness of God. And Charles Spurgeon once tried to describe what that looks like. He said, it's like you're an empty bottle and you position yourself to be filled by the love of God, to be filled with the fullness of God. And then once we position ourselves, he said, it's like filling the bottle with seawater and then throwing the bottle into the sea. So the sea is inside the bottle and the sea surrounds the bottle. God's love is inside of you and God's love is all around you, shaping creation, saving the lost by the grace and the name of Jesus Christ uh producing kindness in you that was impossible before letting you walk out the door knowing that you are loved that you are valued and that your story is being shaped by the creator of the universe not by something that's going to f- fade away not something that's fickle or that's false not the opinions of others and not your own insecurities what would happen if we began to live life that way what if we began to live life filled with the fullness of god how different would your life look This morning, I want to invite anybody, if you've had a wrong idea about Jesus and his character and how he views you, we're going to invite you to come up and have somebody pray over you, to speak truth over you, even if you don't have eyes that believe it yet. Even if it's not in your heart yet, let us speak and pray truth over you. If you're here this morning and you're saying, I want to position myself under the never-ending Niagara that is God's love. Come this morning and let us in faith pray with you about that. If there's anything at all in your life that you want to put in the hands of the all-powerful God who knows you and loves you, we invite you to come during this ministry time. Please join us as we sing.